Hi everyone, I'm Jen Malott, a partner in Freshfield's antitrust practice in Washington, D.C. and Brussels, and you're listening to the Essential Antitrust Podcast. It has been a busy few weeks for the U.S. Department of Justice and Federal Trade Commission with not one, but two big announcements. First, at the end of June, the agencies announced proposed sweeping changes to the HSR form that, if implemented, would make it look a lot more like an EU Form CO, except somehow a little bit worse. Second, just last week, the agencies released their long-awaited merger guidelines, which set out the approach that both agencies will take to assessing horizontal and non-horizontal issues in mergers going forward. So I have two of my U.S. colleagues here with me today to break it all down. First, we have Bruce McCulloch, who's a partner in our Washington office and the head of our U.S. antitrust practice. Hi, Bruce. Hey, Jen. Glad to be here. And then we also have Laura Onkin, who's a counsel in our antitrust practice in Washington, D.C. Hi, Laura. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. So let's get into it. With the proposed changes to the HSR filing and the release of new guidelines on the antitrust assessments that will be conducted by the U.S. agencies, we are seeing big changes both on form and substance moving together. Bruce, I know that these changes that are proposed to the HSR form are extensive, but maybe you can explain for our listeners just how big of a change we are really talking about here. Yeah, sure. It's helpful to start with what we have. What we have with the HSR form today is very much a check the box, fill in the blank type of form. There, there's not a lot of narrative and you have to produce a limited set of documents that are transaction related. So it is a relatively simple form. The new form is much closer to and actually goes well beyond what you see in a European form CO. And to cut to the chase, there's really three areas where we're seeing new information that is required. The first is with narratives, much like a form CO, the parties will need to provide extensive descriptions of the deal rationale, the overlaps, if any, in terms of horizontal and vertical overlaps, as well as providing information on other contracts uh, between the parties. The second area is on documents. Today, as I said, you need to produce a certain amount of what we call item four documents, which are documents related to the transaction and deal with competition and competition-related uh, subjects. That is going to be expanded both in terms of the number of people you must collect the documents from and also the types of documents that will need to be provided, which will include drafts of documents, including uh, documents that could have multiple drafts. And you also have to produce ordinary course documents related to competition, which previously would only have been provided in a second request context. And the last area of expansion is really in areas that aren't really traditional antitrust areas, certainly not merger control areas, which are information related to foreign subsidies and also a vast amount of labor statistics, which has never been part of a HSR initial review. Well, thanks, Bruce. I mean, I think it's clear that all of that is going to add up to a dramatic increase in the filing burden on both parties. And hopefully, you know, the DOJ and FTC have tried to estimate this for us. So they've said they think that about 37 hours go into preparing a filing today and 144 hours per party. So the transaction will be required going forward. I mean, I think our view is that those estimates are obviously going to vary significantly by transaction and especially for those deals that raise even a moderate level of overlaps or, or vertical issues, 
may require many, many more than that 144 hours to put a filing together. So Laura, looking at the other side of the news from the last couple of weeks, the DOJ and the FTC have also released their long-awaited new draft merger guidelines. Can you tell us a little bit about what is in those and, and maybe how they align with the changes to the form that Bruce just described? Sure, happy to. You know, similar to the proposed changes to the form, the draft merger guidelines really reflect an aim to strengthen and expand antitrust enforcement, which is consistent with the merger analysis we've seen in practice under this administration to date. The guidelines basically read as a menu of various frameworks under which the agencies might find anti-competitive harm. And many of the frameworks represent a much lower bar for the DOJ and FTC to find harm than prior guidelines had included. I'll just run through a, a few of the key changes. First, there's a lowering of the structural presumption. So the level at which the DOJ and FTC might presume a transaction is anti-competitive, they've proposed lowering this to a, a much lower concentration threshold, a 1,800 HHI instead of a 2,500 HHI. They've also included a structural presumption that attaches with a 30% market share. And there's only a small change in concentration needed so basically, you could have a transaction that's 28% share for one company plus 2% share for the other company. And under the draft guidelines, that would trigger a presumption of harm. Second, vertical transactions are also treated with a high degree of skepticism. Pro-competitive benefits like elimination of double marginalization are no longer credited. And they've proposed a structural presumption on the vertical side as well. So if a transaction would result in 50% market share for an input used by rivals, the agencies will presume that that transaction is anti-competitive. The guidelines also address issues with transactions that don't have any competitive overlap or any vertical integration. So there's guidelines on entrenching a dominant position, which might come about through a combination of complementary products under the guidelines. There's also guidelines that address acquisitions of potential competitors or nascent competitors. These could be particularly relevant in industries with high levels of innovation, so the tech and life sciences sectors. Finally, there's a catch-all provision. So in addition to this broad menu of ways for the agencies to find anti-competitive harm, there's a provision that says, even if something is not specifically enumerated in these guidelines, if something else could raise competition issues, the DOJ and FTC will, will look into that and potentially seek to address that. So the headline is incredibly broad and lowers the bar for the agencies to find harm. The overall takeaway, I think, is, is that both of the changes to the form and to the guidelines are consistent with the goals of the DOJ and FTC leadership uh, since they've come into uh, their positions. And, and that goal is to ramp up antitrust enforcement and including on the merger side. And the practical implication is that the changes will effectively make HSR Act reporting more burdensome and significantly more costly. Thanks very much, both. And, and so, you know, we have on the one hand, the agencies trying to get a lot more information in the forms than they get today. But then on the other hand, you know, as, as Bruce just pointed out, guidelines that are much more um, aggressive than we've seen in merger guidelines in the past, but not necessarily all that far away from where the agencies are in terms of enforcement and have been for the last couple of years now. So when you take those two things together, you know, if I'm a company on the verge of signing a new deal, 
you know, Bruce, as a practical matter, what are the things that I should now be thinking about with these new merger guidelines and the new potential form coming into effect? Well, yeah, timing is the obvious one, right? So we used to say that you could get an HSR form submitted within, you know, five days of signing a deal. We generally want 10 business days, but five days was certainly doable. That is not the case if these changes uh, are implemented. Although the HSR timelines uh, aren't changing, 30 days for the initial review and then obviously the second request review, the form is going to take much more time to prepare and the documents to gather and the narratives to be drafted. So you're going to have to have a buffer at least two to three months unless a lot of work is done pre-signing. And again, to do that work pre-signing is costly and uh, speculative. So you're going to have more time up front and more time built into the agreement to actually get the filing in. The second point is sort of what is going in, and it's, it's a lot of information. And so it's going to take a lot of time to, to pull that together, but it's also going to take a long time for the FTC and the DOJ to review that information. We've heard in busy merger times that the FTC and DOJ staffs have been stretched for merger reviews. Well, they're going to be stretched from day one uh, when this is implemented because it is a tremendous amount of information to review as drafted currently. Yeah. And Bruce, I mean, there are some practical aspects to that too, right? Where today the process for assessing whether an HSR form is complete is pretty technical and straightforward. But now I think in terms of timing, we don't really even know how the agencies will look at these filings and tell you that the clock has in fact started to run. And and I think it's probably worth picking up on this document point in particular and just comparing that to what is the case today Because in a current HSR filing, the agencies get a really pretty limited set of deal-related documents. And importantly, they are limited to the final version of each document. And often, you know, you're talking about stuff that's gone to the board or the executives. So very often those have undergone a review by counsel before they're finalized. Under the new form, the agencies would also get drafts of all of those documents, which is both just a a significant volume of materials to collect and produce, but also means that you have versions of those that have maybe been written by people in the company, bankers, without anyone from the legal team or even the executive team having a sense of what's in them. So we have to kind of take that point alongside the merger guidelines themselves which emphasize the documentary evidence and how probative that is in the reviews of transactions. And I think that's not really a surprise, right? Because documents have been a key part of the evidence that the agencies look at when they assess a merger for a very long time now. This just means that they're going to get a lot more documents earlier. And they're still going to be looking for those same things in them, like evidence of an intent to raise prices or reduce competition or how the company has thought about the transaction in the context of whether they should acquire a target or develop a product in-house. So those, you know, kind of make or buy decisions. But I did want to note, you know, one kind of interesting tidbit in the guidelines where they say that the agencies give little weight, however, to the lack of evidence or the expressed contrary intent of the merging parties. So what they're, they're saying there is that they're giving themselves an out to disregard helpful evidence in the party's documents, but they're still going to consider all the bad stuff in there, which is honestly uh, really pretty astonishing. But maybe to to step away from documents for a minute, I mean, Laura, I want to go back to the points you mentioned earlier about the new information and the guidelines themselves. And, you know, I wonder whether we can tell from those whether there are any particular 
sectors or companies or types of transactions that are more likely to be in the crosshairs here? Sure. And I think while the guidelines are sort of industry agnostic in, in their writing, there's certain guidelines that have greater implication for high priority areas under the current administration. And those areas are not really a surprise based on what we've seen from an enforcement perspective so far, namely tech and life sciences, so industries with a lot of innovation. The guidelines focus on potential and nascent competition, and then also specifically discuss review of transactions involving multi-sided platforms. So first on potential competition, the guidelines address acquisition of a potential competitor specifically. And they set a pretty low bar for what would be considered sort of a reasonable probability of entry. And that low bar is in contrast to sort of discounting potential competitors as a defense. So if a, if a defense to a transaction is that there is a lot of potential entry sort of waiting in the wings, the guidelines discount that potential competition, but really emphasize acquisition of a potential competitor as resulting in anti-competitive harm. The guidelines also discuss nascent competition, including nascent competition that could be used to what they call entrench a dominant position. Both the potential competition and nascent competition points are particularly relevant in tech and life sciences, where we often see a great deal of competition at the early stages, either for treatment of a disease or in the tech space, sort of a, a broad range of early potential competitors um, that might be acquired. And there's sort of a, an ecosystem of startups that actually want to, to be acquired, and that's part of their value proposition. We also see that in the, the biotech space. The guidelines also address multi-sided platforms, specifically provide that competition in, within, um, adjacent to, and between multi-sided platforms all will be considered when reviewing a transaction that involves a multi-sided platform. Thanks, Laura. And I think we have leadership right now at both agencies who have not been at all shy in expressing their skepticism about the incentives of financial sponsors. Bruce, can you maybe talk a little bit about the parts of the guidelines that are that seem targeted at financial sponsor entities like private equity in particular? Sure, Jen. And yes, you noticed that right away. And as you said, it's consistent with what this administration has said since they've, they've come in uh, to their positions, which is they view certain private equity with skepticism. And the changes to the form, as well as to the merger guidelines, seem to take aim at certain investment strategies that are very common for financial sponsors or private equity companies. One is that, you know, a series of small acquisitions in a similar space, which if you want to take the look at it negatively, would call roll-up transactions. And that they, they emphasize those, that they're going to take a look closely at those. Similarly, they're going to look more closely at minority investments across uh, an industry. This is not new to merger control review, but clearly the guidelines say they're going to look at the influence that financial investors can have even with a, a minority stake and whether that can have a competitive effect. And with regard to the form, the changes allow them to see more of this, more than they would have in, in the prior HSR context. And it's going to require, this burden will fall on all companies, but I think some of the burdens will hit private equity companies particularly hard in that you have to now provide acquisitions uh, over 10 years, not just five, and that those acquisitions 
would both be reported by the, the seller and the buyer. Previously, the seller did not need to report prior acquisitions. They also have to provide additional information regarding minority investments and also the people that participate in, in a given fund or fund structure that may have influence over that structure. And in certain situations, limited partner entities would need to be reported. And, and there always is some sensitivity around that. And there's also much greater reporting uh, on officer-director relationships throughout a structure. So both in terms of the substance of the merger guidelines and the changes to the form, there definitely appears to be uh, a willingness in the agencies to look at private equity uh, transactions more closely. Thanks, Bruce. So we have, you know, on the one hand, a much more complicated form. We have merger guidelines that are sort of on par with what the agencies are doing today. All of this is, you know, somewhat processed. It's really interesting for people like us that, that do these filings day in and day out. But for companies, what does this really mean, Bruce, at the end of the day? Does this change the substantive risk at all in the U.S.? Is it going to be harder to get deals through because of these two things? Or is this really just like a codification of what we've already been seeing with this administration? No, it is a change for sure. On the substance, maybe less, but certainly on the form, it's a major change. Parties will need to plan to spend more time and money to file in the U.S. Will this impact decisions to do a deal in the first place? Likely not for most deals. Uh, it's a cost that, that firms will probably choose to take on. But I certainly could see some companies, including private equity companies, considering the HSR burden when making uh, investment decisions in the U.S. I completely agree. And I agree as well that the change on the substantive side is, is less. Um, you know, we've already been seeing these sorts of approaches under the current administration. You know, I, undoubtedly, the FTC and DOJ are going to want to point to these guidelines when they bring cases under some of the novel or, or maybe resurrected theories of harm outlined under the guidelines. But the guidelines aren't binding on the courts. And the ultimate impact of the guidelines will be seen in litigation. The DOJ and FTC emphasize that they have cited to case law on these guidelines, which is you know, the, the first version of the guidelines to, to cite to case law. But they've sort of cherry picked some favorable old case law and have not cited to a lot of the more modern decisions that emphasize a rigorous effects-based analysis. Out of 119 case sites in the guidelines, 92, more than three quarters, predate 1982, which is when the agencies released a version of the guidelines that sort of set out the, the modern merger review framework. So especially on the, the form front, it sounds like a lot of work that companies may need to do here to prepare for this. Bruce, when do we actually expect those changes to go into effect? Yeah, it's a good question, Jen. The Proposed changes are now subject to a notice and comment period. We expect that there will be significant comments that come in and, and there will be debate, at least uh, in, in the public realm, uh, about what should be implemented and maybe what and certainly what should be not. But realistically, we could think as early as uh, early 2024, but the timeline can always be extended. So it's, there's a bit of an uncertainty right now. And truthfully, going back to my prior point, I think the agencies need to prepare as well as our clients because this will be a tremendous increase in the volume of information that they're going to have to review on a day-to-day -day basis. And Laura, how about on the merger guideline side? The guidelines are also in draft form and also currently subject to public comment. But on the guideline side, 
you know, it, it really is just sort of a reflection of what we're already seeing in practice. So in a sense, the substance of the guidelines is already effective in terms of what the DOJ and FTC are, are doing in their merger reviews. At the same time, as I mentioned, the underlying law is not changed, and it remains to be seen if the revised guidelines will have a significant influence on judicial practice. Okay, so I mean, especially on the form front, it sounds like we have a little bit of time before this goes into effect. So Bruce, for companies that want to try to get ahead of this, what can they do already to start preparing? Well, for for certain large companies, for large private equity funds, this will be a large burden. And so you can get ahead of it a little bit in terms of gathering the information and and centrally keeping up-to-date certain lists, such as minority investments and officer-director relationships and that kind of thing. So there is advanced work that can be done. And that's, I think, I expect lots of companies to go that route if these look like they're going to come into place uh, in 2024. In terms of the the deal assessment, it's going to be more upfront time, uh, I think, as I already said. And unlike previously, where you had to look at maybe five to 10 documents, sometimes more, but usually five to 10 documents that were submitted with the HSR form. Now you're going to have 50 or so as an example. And so you're going to have to be prepared to basically defend everything that's said in those documents. So it's going to take advanced planning and much more time than we've previously seen uh, on the HSR front. And this isn't really a change, but the antitrust assessment, including in this sort of enhanced scrutiny enforcement environment, informs transaction timelines. It informs long stop dates, efforts, provisions, a lot of components that go into sort of negotiating a deal at the outset. And those decisions can't be made without a clear view of the antitrust assessment and strategy. So early engagement with the antitrust council is important just to make sure those considerations are being thought through in advance. Yeah, I mean, I agree with with everything that you both said. And, you know, going back to the point that Laura made earlier on the guidelines in particular that, you know, how those play out in practice is ultimately going to depend on what the courts have to say about them. You know, I think that is only going to continue a trend we've already been seeing, which is that more parties are including obligations to litigate in their transaction documents and putting in long stop dates that actually allow for that possibility because more cases are um, actually going to trial. So I think we'll continue to see that certainly going forward with these new guidelines. But with that, I think we are at the end of our time. Uh, Thank you both so much for joining today to talk about both the new merger form and the new guidelines in the U.S. I mean, I think it is very clear that aggressive enforcement in the U.S. is not going anywhere anytime soon. But it was great to have you both. And thanks for the insights. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Jen. To everybody else, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you here next time with more Essential Antitrust.